0: Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of class from Monday, November 29th, 2021. In this one, we talk about biochemical tests, and you'll hear me say this in the recording, but again, focus mostly on which organ or system of the body we are getting information about when we look at these tests. As far as memorizing the normal range, there are a few. There are a few of these that I think you should go ahead and memorize the normal range because it may come back to haunt you on something like the RD exam. But in general, any time you're looking at biochemical values, they're going to be printed, the the normal ranges will be printed on the chart. So again, focus on what we're looking for or what kind of information we get from these tests unless on the, uh, the normal range, unless otherwise specified. All right, announcements. Lab is in Graves Hall this week. The syllabus just said TBD, um, but we sort of bumped the week where we were going to do maternal infant assessment so we could do diet assessment again. So we're in Graves Hall. You don't need to bring any, like bring yourselves, wear a mask, but you don't need your safety glasses. You're not going to do any more finger sticks. There's no more, no more torture. Um, so that's, that's the plan for this week. There are, I forgot to put this on here, but there's a bunch of stuff due on Thursday this week. So that's all listed out on Carmen. It should be on your to-do list. It should be in the module for this week, and it should be on the overview page for this week as well. A bunch of pieces of the ABCD project as well as lifelong learning number nine. Um, And then I do have, I want to do like a highlight of, do be sure to check out this reading before Wednesday. So this is from 2020, Hidden in Plain Sight, reconsidering the use of race correction in clinical algorithms. That's basically going to be our discussion on Wednesday. It's a short article, and it's a good one. Um, So do take a look at that before Wednesday. Today's Did You Know? Hashtag not sponsored. Did You Know Welly Makes Extra Long Bandages? So Welly makes um, all kinds of different band, I mean, they're basically band-aids, but band-aids is a brand name. Um, And they make an extra long bandage that wraps around your finger multiple times so that when you burn yourself the day before Thanksgiving making desserts, uh, you can then sufficiently wrap around that finger for the next five days of constant washing dishes, prepping food, (coughs) washing hands, ask me how I know. They also make, so the handy band-aids, they make the handy band-aids with like a fruit and vegetable theme. So I was, I was very on point with my band-aids this weekend. I had my little fruit and vegetable themed extra long band-aids wrapped around my burned finger. I'm going to be just fine. I don't have an increase in metabolic needs from this burn, but it was annoying AF. I can just tell you that much right now. So Welly, Welly makes extra long band-aids. Should anyone be as clumsy as I am and forget to like, I don't know. Put on the oven mitts. I was putting something in the oven at least, right? I wasn't trying to take something out barehanded. I was putting it in, but I hit the rack and... mm. Words were said. Put it that way. (laughs) My husband came running and was like, I'm fine. Mostly mad at myself for doing this. All right. Biochemical assessment. So we have talked about various biochemical tests specific to different conditions, right? We talked about testing your blood glucose We looked at diabetes, we've talked about iron assessment, and we even started to look at this right before the midterm, and I kind of don't expect you to remember it because it was right before the midterm, and also the midterm was, let's not talk about how many weeks ago that was. Um, so, quick refresh, recap, sort of ease back into um, classes after our too short long weekend. Biggest things with biochemical assessment. We want you to remember um, why is this thing in the bloodstream? Is it supposed to be there, right? Is it supposed to be there normally? Or what does it mean if it's there in a concentration other than what we would expect it to be? What is the organ or system that we think may be out of, out of whack or you know, not working if it, if, it, if it is out of range? How much does that one value tell us, right? What is the context here? How much information do we really get for that? And probably my biggest, biggest, biggest thing with biochemical assessment, possibly biggest thing with this class, where are you gonna go for more information, right? When you need to know more about that thing, whatever that thing is, where are you gonna go look it up? So with biochemical, Of the ABCDE information, biochemical is considered the most objective, although put a pin in in this thought. I put a question mark after objective. We're going to talk about this on Wednesday. Biochemical tests are considered to be the most objective, right? We quantify the presence of something, and we have determined a range that that something should be within, and if it's outside of that range, something is wrong, right? but we'll come back to this on Wednesday. Once we've got those numbers, how we use them may or may not be as objective as we intended, but that is a whole, that is literally all day Wednesday. So you can see where though, it is considered to be more objective as opposed to something like collecting someone's dietary intake, right? It's incredibly subjective. It's based on what the person can remember, what they're able to tell you, what they're willing to tell you, right? So collecting dietary intake data can be very subjective And regrettably, there is no biochemical value we can assess to say this is exactly how many calories you ate yesterday, right? We can't just do a blood draw, sample that, and say, oh, well, you ate this many calories yesterday with this many calories from carbohydrate, protein, and fat, and your total energy. No, that's not not how that works. Would that we could, but that's not not how it works. Biochemical tests are quantitative, so we're coming up with a number, with a very few exceptions, you don't need to memorize the numbers. The numbers will always be on the chart, right? They will always be provided when you're looking at the patient's chart, whether it's on paper or far more likely electronic. The reference range is going to be there. That said, you do have this little credentialing exam at some point in your future where you're gonna need to have some things memorized. So I have brought back the memorize this icon on a couple slides to say, hey, this is probably when you wanna commit to memory for for that little RD exam thing. And with biochemical tests, they can be static measures or functional measures. So a static measure means you're directly measuring the thing of interest. A functional measure means you're measuring something whose function depends on the thing of interest, right? So if my eyesight is going, I have have night blindness, that would say that I have poor vitamin A status, right? So it's a functional measure. When it comes to biochemical assessment, you can sample just about anything that comes off of a human. You can do urine, feces, sweat, saliva. Biopsy means to go in and remove a piece of tissue and you can biopsy anything, any organ, any part of the skin. Um, basically, it's, it's a solid piece of you. When it comes to blood, you can sample whole blood, you can sample serum, you can sample heparinized whole blood. You all heparinized whole blood a couple weeks ago you collected your um, blood sample in the heparinized capillary tube, and then we spun it down, right? That's heparinized whole blood, which we then split into um, serum and red blood cells. You can look at red cells, you can look at white cells. Again, we've talked about a lot of this already when we did our assessment on hematology, um, but I wanted to rehash, like this is what we mean by biochemical samples. So it's, it's a biological marker of something. So it's a biological marker of something. It's quantifiable. And we're looking at it to see whether or not a disease is present or a condition is present or what have you. Something is amiss. So I did this slide right before the midterm and I gave you the wrong version of it. So let's try again. Um, But this is looking at sensitivity and specificity, which is kind of a big deal. So let's review this one again. So with sensitivity and specificity... We're looking at whether or not the marker or the test is able to detect the presence of the thing that we're interested in, that's sensitivity, and whether or not it's able to rule out something, that's specificity. So in reality, there's only two possibilities. In reality, you either have a disease or you do not have a disease, right? We'll take COVID-19 for example. In reality, there are two possible states. You can have COVID-19, or you cannot have COVID 19. There's no in between, right? So it's one of those two states. If we have a, a test, a test for COVID 19, the test can come back one of two ways. The test can come back positive, meaning the disease is present, or the test can come back negative, meaning it has not detected disease. So this can trip some people up because a positive test is usually a bad thing, right? It's not a positive thing to have a positive test. You all are living through year two of a global pandemic. I think you got that concept down, right? But there, there are plenty of people who say, oh, I got positive results. They think that must be a good, mm. Positive test means something is out of range. So let's say you have a positive test and you do in fact have COVID-19. That is a true positive. So as you're looking at this chart, which I legit draw every time, I have to remember which one is sensitivity and which one is specificity. Um, True means whether or not the test matches reality, right? So if the test is positive and the person has the disease, it's a true positive. So positive or negative describes the test and true or false describes whether or not it aligns with reality, right? So if the test is positive and you have COVID-19, it is a true positive stay home, right? We got that that pretty pretty well established. On the other hand, if the test is positive, but you do not have COVID-19, you do not have the disease, that would be a false positive. That would mean that the test says you've got it, but in reality, you do not have it. That's a false positive, right? It would kind of suck, but as long as, I mean, you could, right? You could be asymptomatic and you could believe that you had it, but you didn't actually have it. It's not likely, we've got very good tests at this point, but it's, it's a possibility, right? On the other hand, let's say that the test is negative, but you do in fact have COVID-19, a nightmare scenario as far as I'm concerned, right? Then the test is false. The test is lying to you. It's not lying to you, it's just wrong, right? About what is actually happening in reality. So the test is negative, but you do have disease. That's a false negative. We do not want to be in that box either, right? this would mean that you're blithely walking around spreading deadly pathogens, not knowing it, right? That's a bad, bad place to be. However, if the test is negative and you in fact do not have COVID-19, that is a true negative, right? So when it comes to these tests, right? We want our tests to always be a true positive or a true negative, right? but that's not always the case. It's been a couple years now, but I went to my doctor with my typical strep throat symptoms. I got like strep throat like seven times in one year when I was a kid. Like that's just my thing. They yanked my tonsils after that. I just, I get strep throat all the time. It's lovely. So I went to my doctor and <clears throat> she said, hmm, I wonder if you have strep. She did a rapid strep test on me and it came back negative. It said, I do not have strep throat. And she looked at me and she looked at my clinical history and she decided, I think that's a false negative for you. I think you do have strep because I had all the symptoms. I have a long history of getting strep and responding well to antibiotics. She gave me the antibiotics. I got better, right? So why do I bring in that example? We have these tests, right? We have positives and negatives, but then we also have clinical judgment. That lovely term you keep hearing every time we don't give you a definitive answer on something, right? We say, you're gonna use your clinical judgment. My, my physician used her clinical judgment and said, I don't think this was a true negative in your case. I think this is a false negative. I'm gonna treat you anyway, right? And in that case, it's not really a big deal. It was antibiotics that I responded well to, I got better, right? Where this is um, more problematic, let's say you had a false positive for cancer. You did not have cancer, but you were told that you do have cancer, and then you underwent treatment for cancer, right? Cancer sucks. You know what sucks worse than cancer? Most of the treatments for it, right? It's nasty stuff. So if you if you had that sort of false positive and you were treated and you didn't need to be, that that's a problem, right? So sensitivity is how good is the test at picking up disease when disease is present? So sensitivity would be out of all of the people who do have the disease, how many times does the test say the disease is present? Whereas specificity would be, out of all the people who do not have the disease, how many times does the test say they do not have the disease, right? In theory, you would want a test that is always completely sensitive and completely specific, but in reality, those types of things don't exist, right? There's always a margin of error. So I think the, the strep test that I did had like a 95% sensitivity, like a 95% of the time it's gonna pick up when strep is present. And my doctor said, yeah, you're in the 5%, right? You're, you, were, you actually have strep, the test just is not right this time. So we want tests that are highly sensitive, we want tests that are highly specific, but they're not always possible, right? And there are multiple factors we have to weigh, right? So for example, I mentioned cancer, breast cancer. A mammogram is very good at picking up that something is off, reasonably good anyway, but it's not very specific. It can detect that there's an anomaly, but it doesn't necessarily detect that there is cancer, whereas a biopsy is very specific. It's very good at saying, yes, that is cancer or no, that is not cancer, right? But we don't start with the biopsy of breast tissue because that's very invasive and expensive and painful, right? You start with the more sensitive test, and if it says, hey, something is amiss here, then you move to the more specific test that is more invasive and more painful and more costly and all that jazz, right? So the reason I'm saying all of this is is a huge lead up to, we set ranges for where we expect someone to be within normal limits, and someone could be outside of those limits and still be normal, that's a possibility, or they could be outside of those limits and be abnormal right? So I had a false negative test for strep throat. It said I did not have strep throat. Pretty sure I did. I got better with the antibiotics, right? So with test results, a negative test is a good thing in this case. I love the way we use words to confuse people. We're not trying to confuse you, but negative test means within normal limits, all is well. Whatever that measure is, all is well. Positive test means outside of limits, needs further investigation or is part of the clinical picture, right? A positive test means we need to look further for more information. There are, however, cutoffs. We as humans, right, have determined cut points for where we expect normal ranges to be. And a person could have a normal status but show up as a false negative if we put the cut point line here, right, right? Some people could be, could be totally normal, but show up as a false negative, right? And then, no, these are the abnormal status. Someone could be to this side of the cutoff line, be abnormal, but be shown as false negative. Someone could be this far to the cutoff line, be normal, and be a false positive, right? The cut points are not arbitrary, but they are made by humans, right? This is, this is leading up to we're We're going to talk about this more on Wednesday. We talk about biochemical tests being the most quantitative and being the most objective? Yes, but there's still humans involved, which means there's still plenty of room for error. So within normal limits, what does within normal limits lead? For example, hemoglobin and hematocrit, which we did just a couple weeks ago, there are normal ranges for adult males and adult females for both hemoglobin and hematocrit. For the most part, I do not need you to memorize the ranges for these biochemical tests. Go ahead and memorize H&H though. That whole RD exam thing, maybe just go ahead and commit those ones to memory. So for adults, adult male hemoglobin, 14 to 18 grams per deciliter. Adult female, 12 to 16 grams per deciliter. Hematocrit for males, 40 to 54%. Hematocrit for females, 37 to 47%. I have my memorize this icon on there. Go ahead and memorize those too. I also put on here for reference your red cell count, mean corpuscular hemoglobin, mean corpuscular volume. All of these are review from a couple weeks ago, the, the pre-recorded content on a Monday. Um, and also, in case you, perhaps like me, don't just naturally remember all of the Latin prefixes for numbers, I've got those across the bottom as well. So if you need, if you need to remember that femto leader means really, 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 really small, right? Femto would be 10 to the negative 15. It's a very small quantity, 1,000 trillionth of a liter. There we go. It's in my notes. 1,000 trillionth. Sure. Really small. So we have normal ranges. We know if someone is below this range, what is probably the case, what's probably going on if their hemoglobin and hematocrit are below the normal range. Iron deficiency, right? That's probably what's going on, which could be caused by any number of things, right? Blood loss, inadequate diet, presence of disease, hemolytic anemia, all kinds of options, right? But that's probably present. All right. Typical blood chemistries. So when we do biochemical assessments, the biggest thing that I would like you to walk away with is if you see these types of lists, that you know which organ or system we're probably looking at. And the next slide is substantially the same, but I have a couple different ones on here. Osmometry, the first one, osmometry is looking at hydration status, right? So if you're looking at an osmometry, you're looking at hydration status. Albumin, prealbumin, and nitrogen balance, we're looking at protein status, although we have talked about that and we will refresh on that. Um, And then I think the rest of this is on the next slide. So I've got the memorize this icon here. Again, you do not need, well, you did need to memorize the normal values for triglycerides, LDL and HDL. Go ahead and keep those committed to memory for for future reference and and exams and such. Um, But you do not need to memorize the normal range for lactate dehydrogenase, troponin, ALT, AST, creatine kinase, creatine phosphate kinase. Um, You don't need to memorize those ranges you do wanna go ahead and memorize the range for glucose, right? for testing for presence of prediabetes or diabetes and hemoglobin A1C and triglycerides. So I guess the lipid line and the diabetes line, those would be ones where you do want to commit to memory the numbers, right? Other than that though, what I really want you to remember is which system or organ do these tests correspond to? Because if you see these tests on a patient chart, I want that to trigger in your mind, oh, they're looking for kidney function or they're chucking liver function. I wonder what medications they're taking that might be harmful to the liver, right? Being able to look at this and know where you're gonna look next is more important than having the normal ranges memorized with the exception of the lipids and the and the glucose, right? Those those are kind of a big deal. So I think that I'll 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 make sure this is all spelled out on the study guide for the final exam which is coming. Cuz apparently it's week 16, 15 15, next week's week 16. When did that happen? Can I right? Like it's August yesterday, right? It'll all be spelled out what you do and don't need to memorize for for reference ranges, but Beyond this class, beyond the RD exam, what's more important is you know which organ or system we're probably talking about, right? For example, here is a comprehensive metabolic panel. This is what a comprehensive metabolic panel is gonna look like every time. They tell you which biomarker has been tested. They tell you what the measured value is. (laughs) And then they include a column right next to it that tells you the reference range. And very often they'll do something like this where they will bold or highlight or in a different color or in some way, shape or form tell you which values were out of range, right? They will indicate which values are out of range. So for the most part, you don't need to memorize what the normal ranges are for these things because they're gonna be right there on the page. This is my comprehensive metabolic panel from a couple years ago. Notice my CO2 was out of range. My doctor did not bring me back for further testing. Why didn't my doctor bring me back for further testing? It's not very far out of range, right? There was nothing else wrong with me. It was just an annual physical. I was perfectly healthy otherwise, right? There's that clinical judgment again, right? We talk about these numbers, they are meant to be objective numbers, right? But they inform what they do, what we do rather. They don't dictate what we do. So it's out of range, but mm, eh? I don't know, maybe I need to take a deeper breath that day. It's fine, right? The number's fine, I'm still doing just fine. There are other numbers though that if they were out of range, be more concerned. So if if my fasting blood glucose was 120, would she shrug that off? No, that would be a problem right so it's it's a matter of what does that value tell us and how far out of range if it is out of range and oh by the way let's look at the patient and see how is the patient doing and what else is going on so for all the values you see here here are the normal ranges which again you don't need to commit to memory but this is a handy reference should you ever find yourself needing to know what they are you can also come in here and click on any one of those tests and it will take you to a website with more information about that test. Um, we have talked about a lot of these already in terms of um, looking at protein status, looking at electrolytes. Um, what else is on here? That's, that's most of it. We've got liver enzymes. We've got kidney function. We'll talk more about those a little bit today. Um, but this would be a comprehensive metabolic panel. This is the type of thing where you go for an annual physical and they say, all right, we're going to run a metabolic panel on you. You're, just going to, you're going to run all these tests, right? And you hope to see everything within normal limits, within the correct range, right? But if something comes back out of range, then maybe we should look further or maybe we let it go because it's not that far out of range and there's no reason to be concerned about the patient's CO2 status, right? That's, that's an option, too. If you wanted specifically to look at cardiac enzymes, this would be cardiac enzymes or a myocardium panel. So remember, ALT and AST are commonly referred to as the liver enzymes, but they are found in other tissues as well. The biggest thing with the cardiac enzymes is that these are enzymes that are typically present in very low quantities, but if a heart cell or heart tissue has been damaged, then those cells lice, they open up, they they rupture. The enzymes are released into the bloodstream at that point. That increase in the presence of those enzymes can tell us that there's been damage to the heart. Although ALT and AST could also be indicative of damage to the liver. So it's not enough to look at just those two. We would also look at lactate dehydrogenase, creatine kinase, and troponin, right? Troponin is that one that's very specific to the heart. They all have different amounts of time after heart damage that they would peak. We talked about this with the cardiac slides. I even went back and figured out which slides those were, if you want to go back and review those. Um, B-type natriuretic peptide is when we look at heart failure. You guys all nailed it on the midterm exam with that one. Um, so these, these are good to review. Again, none, none of those do you need to memorize the normal ranges, right? What you need to remember is there's something wrong with the heart, We're trying to figure out what's wrong with the heart if they're running cardiac enzymes. Just mentioned ALT and AST. So a liver panel is looking at possible liver damage. There's any number of reasons, any number of disease states where you would be monitoring the health of the liver. Notably, there are also a lot of medications that are known to be hepatotoxic or toxic to the liver because that's the liver's job, right? It's to go through and metabolize everything. But a patient may be prescribed those medications regardless because a, a physician has made the decision that they need that medication, right? So for example, when my dad had leukemia, he was given a lot of super nasty drugs that did super nasty things to his body, but it was in the name of stopping leukemia from killing him, so priorities, right? But they did monitor his liver enzymes to make sure that it wasn't doing too much damage to his liver as they were giving him all these medications. So liver enzymes would be things like ALT and AST. Um, Also alkaline phosphatase or ALP. Um, ALP is found in liver, bone, placenta and intestine. It is found in some liver diseases. You also may see ALP elevated when bone is diseased or in a state of healing and or growth. Basically in any osteoblastic state, you could see ALP elevated as well. So a liver panel would be things like ALT, AST, and ALP. And there's an, any of a number of reasons. You wouldn't, if you were otherwise healthy and walked into your doctor's office, they wouldn't necessarily say, let's do a liver panel. But if you were, t- if you were otherwise healthy and taking a medication that might cause liver damage, um, you could get liver, liver enzymes tested on a regular basis. Um, and certainly if you had known liver damage, these would be ones you'd want to watch as well. Speaking of the liver... Let's talk about bilirubin. So bilirubin is a breakdown product of heme, heme being that piece of hemoglobin that helps you carry oxygen through the blood, kind of a big deal. Anything that inhibits the breakdown of hemoglobin leads to an increase in bilirubin. So let's trace this through. You all can read, but basically um, there's planned destruction of the hemoglobin cells, right? They, They they, they make it about 90 to 120 days-ish. So the breakdown of um, the hemoglobin leads to the production of bilirubin. Bilirubin is then taken to the liver, and from there, it's conjugated with gluconuronic acid. Gl- glucouronic acid, sorry. Um, the conjugated bilirubin is then secreted into bile and then into the intestine right, so we use bilirubin as part of bile, which is also used as part of absorption and digestion, right, into the intestine. In the intestine, the glucuronic acid is removed by bacteria, and the resulting bilirubin is converted to urobilinogen, okay. Urobilinogen is yellow, fun fact. Some of the urobilinogen gets picked up and absorbed, and it goes to the kidneys, right, and it's excreted, from the kidneys, urobilinogen is why P is normally yellow, because urobilinogen is a yellow color, right? Not all of it gets picked up though. Some of it stays in the intestine or is is reabsorbed, and it enters the small intestine again, where it is further um, oxidized and metabolized, and it's converted um, by intestinal bacteria to stercobilin, which is brown which is why poop is brown, the more you know. The things you learn, 8 a.m. on a Monday morning. So urobilinogen is yellow. It's a breakdown product of hemoglobin, and it's yellow, okay? And then once that's oxidized, it becomes stercobilin, which is brown. So you now know why pee is yellow and poop is brown. I feel like I should be having conversations with my four-year-old right now, right? Very important conversations. Anything that backs this up, anything that causes damage to the liver, that causes a blockage in the liver, that decreases the body's ability to, decreases the liver's ability to metabolize things, basically, can increase the amount of bilirubin that stays in circulation, that stays in the blood. That's not where it belongs, though. So if you are checking bilirubin, you are definitely checking someone's liver status. So bilirubin indicates liver function. It could be if you have elevated bilirubin, that you have a liver blockage, a gallbladder blockage, because the gallbladder member concentrates and stores bile, which is where the bilirubin went, or liver damage or disease. When you are assessing bilirubin in an adult, basically anything outside of range, we have a problem, right? Also for for an adult with prolonged um, liver damage and elevated bilirubin, they get a jaundiced appearance, this person has not been on a lovely vacation and had to have a tan, right? They're yellow. Their skin is yellow. The whites of the eyes turn yellow. Do not ask them where they've been getting their son. They are very, very sick, right? On the flip side though, jaundice in infants is measured differently. Short version is newborns, while in utero, their mom's body was basically doing the work for them and the liver basically was lazy, didn't have to do anything yet. Once they're born, the liver kind of has to get it together. And so um, normal levels of bilirubin are actually assessed um, by the age in hours when the child is under a week old, right? So short version is the the liver is still working on waking up and, and getting it together. And so if the child is between 7 to 14 days, there's your normal value, if you are between um, 15 days and 17 years, if you're a pediatric patient, there's normal value. And then for adults, it should be less than 1.2 milligrams per deciliter, anything above that, we're looking at possible jaundice. But it's, it's much higher um, in newborns and infants up to the first two weeks, because we, we gotta get the liver going, right? So it's very common, we have an infant at the top here, uh, with mild jaundice who did not need any intervention, right? You can see he's a little bit more yellow than my hand. Also, he's holding my hand. Look at how cute, right? I I just, that's my son, he's gonna be five next month. How did that happen, right? But there's there's normal jaundice, just a little bit yellow. He's fine. Some babies, though, need a little bit more help. So this baby down here is under a specific wavelength of blue light that helps break down the bilirubin as it circulates throughout the body, right? So this, is, well, this would be for infants who have more severe jaundice. Um, excess bilirubin in the bloodstream does cause damage to newborns. And so we do want to treat that. Luckily though, newborns are basically, they're, they're getting it together. They're adapting to being in the outside world. And so the liver is essentially coming online is the way I like to think of it. It's like, it's, it's, it's waking up, it's getting there. So, you know, after a day or two of this type of treatment periodically throughout the day, the baby should be fine. Right? We should be able to see those bilirubin levels decrease. Baby's gonna be fine. This particular child is now a perfectly happy two and a half year old, um, so it's it's fine. The reason this doesn't work for adults though, why you can't put jaundice adults under a blue light and solve all their problems. If adults have jaundice, it's typically because of liver damage, right? The liver is not getting better, it's already had a lot of damage, possibly is getting worse. Whereas a newborn has it, hopefully, an otherwise healthy liver, it just hasn't started working yet, right? So this type of treatment helps take care of the baby until the liver can take over and do its job, right? Adults with liver damage, the liver is not, we don't regenerate livers, unfortunately. That would be pretty darn cool, but that would also be science fiction, right? So, works in kids, not in adults. He's gonna be five. When did that happen? Oh my word. This is the same little same little boy who this morning said, it's really hard to get up and go to school after a break. He's a smart kid. Urobilinogen, so we just talked about this. This is another graphic that shows the way urobilinogen works. It should be found in urine to some extent. If it's too low, then that means it's not getting, the, the bilirubin is not getting broken down. It's not getting to the kidneys, right? So that could be indicative of liver dysfunction. If, however, it's too high, if there's too much urobilinogen, that could, be, that could also be liver disease or damage. Or hemolytic anemia is when the red blood cells lice, right, so think about this. If the red blood cells all break apart in mass, then you're gonna end up with a lot of bilirubin and a lot of urobilinogen that your body is trying to get rid of, try to get out of the body. So there's a normal range for urobilinogen and urine. Too low is a problem, and too high is a problem as well. Renal function. Speaking of the kidneys, the kidneys are rock stars, right? We don't really talk about them much, but they're they're rock stars. God bless renal dietitians. If any of you want to go into renal as a, as a specialty, please do. I have nothing but respect for dietitians who focus on this. Renal function can be assessed a variety of ways. Um, Creatinine is a byproduct of muscle metabolism. It should be cleared by the kidneys. Um, So you can use a creatinine clearance test. You can also measure it in blood or urine. The normal values are listed there. If you have elevated values, it could be you have a blocked urinary tract. You could have kidney damage or failure, infection of the kidneys, reduced blood flow to the kidneys, or muscle problems like breakdown of muscle fibers, which is called rhabdomyolysis. Um, possibly also problems during pregnancy, such as eclampsia or um, preeclampsia. So there's a number of reasons that this might be out of range. But basically, if you're looking at creatinine, we're thinking about kidney function. Also, kidney function, we have blood urea nitrogen. Urea is another thing that's made in the liver but excreted by the kidneys. So if the kidneys are not able to excrete it, then you end up with an elevated blood urea nitrogen. And glomerular filtration rate, or GFR, also listed as EGFR, estimated glomerular filtration rate in some places. This estimates how much blood is passing through the glomeruli each minute. So how efficiently are the kidneys working, essentially? The normal values, the normal values range, and we have determined what we consider to be normal based on age, ethnicity, sex, creatinine, height, and weight. We're gonna come back to this one on Wednesday where we say these measures are objective, but is the way we're using them truly objective? Regardless, healthy is considered to be greater than 60 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. If, however, the GFR is less than 15, that's a sign of kidney failure, right? Now, something like GFR. If GFR is out of range, that tells us there's something going on with the kidneys, but it doesn't tell us a whole lot more than that. So for example, my dad, when he had his um, stem cell transplant for leukemia, one of his siblings was actually a perfect match for a stem cell donation, which was amazing and to this day is amazing. However, that particular sibling had to undergo some pretty extensive testing to make sure they were healthy enough to donate stem cells. And one of the things that came back on their comprehensive metabolic panel was that the GFR was out of range. So, you know... They live out of state. They came in for all this testing. It was this huge battery of tests. I think they drew, I took a picture, I think it was 37 test tubes of blood is what they drew to run all the tests they wanted to run. And later that day we got a call, hey, we're, we want you to come in tomorrow for an ultrasound of the kidney. My mom's a nurse and I'm, you know, a nerd. And so we go, okay, kidney, it must be her GFR. What is her GFR? And we can go pull up the chart and see what the GFR is. Um, and it was it was low, it was out of range. And that didn't tell us anything. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah, we, we knew that. We knew that it was, there was something on the blood work that came back out of range that said we wanna look more closely at the kidneys, right? So next day we go back for an ultrasound of the kidneys. What they found was scarring on the kidneys indicative of a p- potential past infection of the kidneys, right? So at some point in the past, the kidneys had become infected. There was scarring of the kidneys. They were not as efficient at filtering blood as they might have otherwise been, but it appeared that that infection had long since resolved and we could proceed with the donation. Holy crap, that was a stressful 24 hours, can I just say, right? So the GFR was out of range, it was low. It was not indicative of kidney failure by any means. I wanna say it was still in like the 60s, Um, maybe it was in the 50s, but it 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 was a high low, if that makes sense it was out of range. We had to look further, but it didn't really tell us anything other than we got to look further, right? So biochemical tests, really important, right? But they don't tell you the whole story. They never tell you the whole story. You got to look at the whole patient, maybe other tests, other imaging, other, you, you name it. Cancer sucks. Pancreas. All right. So lipase would be the enzyme that we need for lipid digestion if the Um, lipase levels are elevated or present in the bloodstream really shouldn't be present in the bloodstream at all it should be in your intestines that would indicate damage to the pancreas or possible pancreatitis right next on my list after pancreas i had protein which we already talked about when we looked at um, nutrition focused physical exam so this is also review right but with 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 protein status Most of the transport proteins are acute phase reactants. They're not the only things that are acute phase reactants, but they happen to be acute phase reactants, which is anything that is altered due to acute or chronic inflammation. And most of the things that land you in the hospital also cause acute or chronic inflammation, right? So if your proteins are out of range, that does not necessarily indicate that you are malnourished, right? It's a better indicator of inflammation status than anything. So negative acute phase reactants decrease in the presence of inflammation, whereas positive acute phase reactants increase in the presence of inflammation. Historically, these types of visceral proteins were used to try to assess protein status, but here's what they do in the presence of inflammation. Albumin goes down, prealbumin goes down, transferrin goes down, unless you're iron deficient, in which case transferrin is going to go up to try to transport more iron, and retinol binding protein goes down. Low albumin can also indicate liver disease. It can indicate cirrhosis. It could be malnutrition. It could also be infection, inflammatory bowel disease, thyroid disease. Um, certain medications, steroids, hormones, all kinds of things can alter albumin levels, right? And so the, the big takeaway here is, thank you, Nadine, right? And that is why albumin is not a marker of nutrition status and critical care, right? Regrettably, this myth persists, right? There's this myth that these proteins can be used to assess protein status. They can't. They're more complicated than that, Right? So it's important that you know, I don't really care if you know the normal range for these things. I care that you know that these are vastly more complex than just protein status, right? There's a lot that influences these values, which we already talked about with NFPE, but also this is a good day to review as we ease back into the last two weeks, two weeks of the semester, mm, wild. Thyroid-stimulating hormone. Okay, I would be remiss if I did not talk about thyroid hormones as part of biochemical markers. However, this is absolutely yet another one where we could spend an entire semester just talking about endocrinology. This is why there's a profession called endocrinologists, right? People who, specify, who, who specialize specifically in the hormones that signal your body to do stuff. How's that for an explanation? The hormones that signal your body to do stuff. Specifically, I want to talk about thyroid-stimulating hormone, or TSH, right? So your thyroid makes hormones that regulate the way your body uses energy. So if you've ever heard someone say, oh, I've just really got a fast metabolism, or I've got a really slow metabolism, they're not wrong. It's just more complicated than that. (laughs) But one one of the things that influences metabolism, aside from your um, resting metabolic rate and your lean body mass, would be thyroid. So it plays an important role in regulating body weight, body temperature, as well as things like muscle strength, and it can actually influence your mood as well. So thyroid-stimulating hormone is actually made by a gland in the brain called the pituitary, And when thyroid levels are low, so T3 and T4 would be the thyroid levels, when those are low, then more thyroid-stimulating hormone is made. It's a negative feedback loop. If T3 and T4 are present in adequate quantities, then that sends feedback back to the pituitary and says stop making the thyroid-releasing hormone, or thyrotropin-releasing hormone which then stimulates thyroid-stimulating hormone, right? Basically, if you've got enough T3 and T4, then your TSH should be within normal limits, right? If, however, T3 or T4 are low, then you end up with more TSH. So elevated TSH can indicate that your thyroid is not working properly, right? The pituitary is signaling the thyroid to make T3 and T4 but it's not making T3 and T4, so the pituitary just keeps pumping out, pumping out more and more TSH. On the flip side, if your TSH levels are low, then you may have, the thyroid may be doing work in overtime and producing too much T3 and T4, right? So we can look at T3 and T4. We can also look at TSH to try to figure out what's going on with the thyroid, even though TSH is not made by the thyroid, right? TSH is made by the pituitary to signal the thyroid. So if you have high T3 or T4 in a low TSH, that's possibly hyperthyroidism, which can happen in the instance of Graves' disease, right? Graves' disease, people have a difficult time maintaining weight because their metabolism is in fact elevated in that case. If you have low T3 or T4 and an elevated TSH, that would be indicative of hypothyroidism, which could be caused by something called Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease that causes causes the thyroid to produce too little thyroid hormones. Okay. I added a video to the page for today from Khan Academy that's nine minutes on endocrine, autocrine, and paracrine signaling hormones because there's, there's a lot to unpack here and I have like four minutes left in class. So there's thyroid stimulating hormone. Arterial blood gases, I am not an expert in this. The respiratory therapists would be experts in this. Arterial blood gases, basically we're looking at how well are your lungs taking in oxygen and how well are you then able to then use that oxygen and excrete carbon dioxide the one you may have seen before would be your O2 saturation, your Sao2. For an otherwise healthy individual, this should be between 94 and 100%. When I was in high school, my older cousin, who happens to be a nurse, there's a lot of us, a lot of nurses in my family. She took me to work with her one day and was showing me off, or showing showing me all the stuff that she does. And she put the O2 sat on my finger, and she looked at me and she says, "Oh, good, you're not a smoker." Like, I I had no idea, but she was assessing me to see if I was a smoker as a teenager because she's a nurse and she would have kicked my behind if I had been, right? Because my O2 saturation was high enough, she knew I didn't have chronic lung damage from smoking, right? So O2 saturation should be between 94 and 100 percent. If you have damage to the lungs, chronic lung failure, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that value could be lower. And that is where you might see the respiratory therapist come in and start helping the patient with supplemental oxygen, right? Not our scope of practice, but good for you to understand what that is. And then biggest thing again with all of this is where are you gonna go to look this up when six months from now you're like, I vaguely remember hearing something about that once, that's a thing to do with the kidneys, how do I look that up again, right? So, Medline Plus lab test information is one of my absolute go-tos for when I find myself in the emergency department with a family member and the doctor comes out and says, oh, you're a dietitian, Okay. And then they start speed talking and explaining everything to me like I understand, right? And then I'm gonna go look it up here and try and figure out what it is they just told me. So Medline Plus um, lab test information and medical encyclopedia, both of those are written at a level that are easier for the, like, the lay person to understand which is also how I prefer my information in an emergency, right? I would like to just understand it right now. So I actually had the Medline Plus like shortcut on my phone for a while there because that's how much time I was spending on Medline Plus. Whereas Mayo Medical Clinic Test Catalog is a much higher level explanation of those tests. With that though, it also has a lot more information um, so that may be something you can find useful on, say, case studies for other exam or other classes where you got to get a lot of details. And then, oh, by the way, you do have a really good textbook, right? And there's a section of Chapter 3 that goes over biochemical tests. I think it's Section 3.7, and I forgot to put that on the reading for this week. But that's a really, really solidly good review, particularly as we're going into, like, finals in a couple of weeks. I, again, I'm floored. I don't know how we got this far in the semester. But here we are.